for this morning, um, we are going to be continuing on in Luke's gospel. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. But we're in Luke's gospel, which is really the third book in the uh, New Testament. Chapter 7, I'm going to start in verses 29, in verse 29 and read through verse 50. So I'm taking, guys, you should be proud of me. I'm trying to take 21 verses today. Yeah, this is, we're making some real headway in the gospel of Luke now. I'm a little bit worried about it, so pray for me. But as you guys are turning there, um, let me remind you of what we're jumping into. Um, Jesus has turned to the crowds at this point that have been following him. And he begins to discuss with them uh, things concerning John the Baptist. He's talking about how John, you know, was his forerunner, that John was the greatest or is the greatest among those born of women. But then he transitions a little bit. And he says, but wait a minute, John's role his, his part in all of this is almost done. And he's passing the torch, so to speak, on to me. And those who are in my kingdom and what I am bringing in are going to be greater than even he ever was. So it's here now in verse 29 that we kind of pick this up. Let me read it, we'll pray, and then we'll get going. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, Jesus goes on to say, and what are they like? Well, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We're going to carry on with Luke into verse 36 here. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, or perhaps a better translation, perfumed oil. We're not talking neosporin here perfumed oil and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment now when the pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him for she is a sinner and jesus answering said to him simon I have something to say to you. And he, Simon, answered, Say it, teacher. 
A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, there is always so much that I hope you do in the times that we gather together as your people under your word. Uh, but I suppose this morning if, if I had to identify one thing that I'm just asking, God, it's that you would this morning, bring all of us under the conviction of sin. That you would show us the depths, the root system of evil in our own hearts that still remains, believer or not. So that you can take us from that place of conviction to the cross. So that by the end of our time this morning, we will be on our faces with this woman at your feet. In love with the God who first so loved us. Would you do that by your spirit, for your glory, good of your people here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At first, um, it might seem strange to bring all of these verses together. In fact, even after reading them, you probably can't even hold all of this in your mind at once. But in particular... Um, the discussion in verses 29 through 35 might seem uh, disconnected from the story we just read about this sinful woman in verses 36 to 50. But when we look a little bit closer, I think we see a surprising connection. I think Luke knows, God knows what he's doing here. 
broadly speaking, and, and this is really going to kind of serve as the outline for our time this morning, I think that in verses 29 through 35, what we have is two different groups of people being introduced to us. And then in verses 36 through 50, these two different groups of people are illustrated. We're kind of, we have kind of one representative from each of these groups held out for us to kind of observe and learn from. And so that's really where we're going. I'm going to take that first part and, and go a little bit quicker to get us into the story there in the second so first, two different groups introduced there in verses 29 through 35. Um, in this section, what we see is that the people of Jesus, the people that have kind of been following him, the people around him, as, as, as people are hearing about him and responding to him, they're kind of dividing into two groups. If I had to put a title on it, here's what you see. On the one hand, we have what he calls in verse 35, the children of wisdom. I wonder if you saw that. Wisdom is justified by all her children. So there is this group of people who look at what God is doing and saying, says, yes, this is right. God is just in all that he's doing here. They are what Jesus calls children of wisdom. It's the first group. But then there's this second group that uh, we see there in verse 31. They're called the people of this generation, or he actually goes on to talk about them like children. So we might as well uh, call them the children of this generation. So we have the children of wisdom and the children of this generation. Now, each of these two groups are identified and distinguished, particularly by the way they respond to the ministries of John and Jesus. Children of wisdom, accept, receive all that God is doing with them. Children of this generation, reject. They don't want anything to do with it. Let me show you this in our text. Verse 29 begins with the children of wisdom. Did you see it there? When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. I mean, Luke just wants to make sure we know that the despised people in this culture are the ones who are coming to Jesus through John. But when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. You remember, wisdom is what? justified by her children. Well, these children of wisdom look at what God is doing and say, he's just. This is awesome. What he's done with John and we've received this baptism, this is great. And now we're transitioning into the kingdom of uh, the Christ. This is great. So John the Baptist comes to these people proclaiming a baptism of repentance me, if you don't repent your, of your sin, the coming kingdom, the kingdom that's arriving in Jesus, it, it won't go well for you. That's John's message. That's the essence of John's message. This group of people says, okay. 
if God says it, I'm going to go with God on this one. I might not like (laughs) what he has to say about me. It might not be flattering for my ego to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. Or the arrival of God in Jesus will actually be a day of judgment for me. That's not something fun to say, but the children of wisdom say, if God says it, if that's his directive, if that's his order, if that's his word, I'll go with it. They receive what God is doing in John, and so they're put on trajectory towards Jesus and the kingdom of his grace. It's one group. But then in verse 30, you see that this kind of parenthetical note continues now, and and we're introduced to the children of this generation. Here's their response. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by John. So John the Baptist comes, the voice crying out in the wilderness, the one preparing the way for Jesus. And he says to this group as well, repent of your sin or the kingdom that's arriving in Christ. It's not going to go well for you. And this group says, are you kidding me? Do you know who... We are? I mean, you read it there in verse 30. We're the Pharisees and the lawyers. I mean, we're the religious leaders here. We're the top of the top. You're telling me we got to repent of our sin? Do you watch how I live my life? Do you see the meticulous way I go about developing righteousness? Who are you, man? We're camels, herring, bugs in the wilderness. Go back to where you came from. Thank you very much. We don't need your baptism of repentance. So interestingly, as we continue to see in Luke's gospel, it's the common people, the tax collector, the sinner, people like you and me who are opening their hearts to God's word and directive. And meanwhile, it's the religious elite who ought to know better who are stonewalling God, not letting him in. And so they won't go from John to Jesus in his kingdom of grace. They reject them both. Jesus will later say in a rebuke to the chief priests and the elders of Israel, truly, I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds. That's Matthew 21, 31 to 32. You elders, you chief priests, you religious leaders... It's what you consider to be the scum of society that's embracing salvation in me. Just naming their sin and crying out for salvation. And they're finding it. They're entering the kingdom before you. You won't have John. You don't get Jesus. In verses 31 to 33... Jesus goes on to further describe this second group, this children of of this generation. 
And he tells a parable to try to explain what they're like. And uh, we don't have time to look at it, but, but the essence of it is this. Instead of accepting God's directive for them and his interpretation of their lives, like you need to repent, okay? Instead of receiving that, God's directive for them, they actually are trying to give their directive to God. That's what the children of this generation are like, Jesus is saying. They say, John, you're too ascetic. You're too serious. You're living in the wilderness, always talking about repentance and sin and judgment. You're always fasting. You won't enter into the party. We're going to play you a song you can dance to, man. But he won't do it. He won't do it. He continues with his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm not going to dance to your songs. God doesn't take orders from man. This group says to Jesus, the exact opposite. Man, Jesus, you're too lax. You're too loose. I mean, you're like a a glutton. You're like a drunkard. You're just always partying and celebrating, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You don't take your, your, your religious duties very seriously. I mean, you don't follow our fasts. You're not keeping our Sabbaths. You're not playing by the rules, man. We're gonna play you a song you can cry to. But he won't do it. He would turn to them and say something like we saw in Luke 5.34. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? If I'm here, it's time to celebrate. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, they know it. Why don't you? No, it's not a time to mourn when the bridegroom is here. So John represents, his ministry represents grief over our sin. Jesus in his ministry represents kind of gratitude for God's grace. John comes with fasting. Jesus comes with feasting. John helps us repent. Jesus helps us rejoice. But the children of this generation reject both. You see, that's the point of that parable. They won't have John and his repentance. Why would we repent? Look at us. So they don't get Jesus and his celebration. Why would we leap for joy at this guy being here? Who is he? He's not a king like we want. They won't face the, 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 the gravity, the weight, the depths of their sin, and therefore they miss the Savior. They just miss him. He walks on by and they say nothing in him. I don't want us to miss him. Luke doesn't want us to miss him. And that's why in verses 36 to 50 now, 
he pulls out, as it were, a single representative from each of these two groups and says, let's watch what happens and let's learn from them. So now the two different groups illustrated, verses 36 to 50. As a representative of the children of this generation, we meet a Pharisee named Simon. Here's, here's one of the members who turned from God. We don't need him. Pharisee named Simon. You see him there in verse 36. And then as a representative of the children of wisdom, these lower class, you know, of society people of the bottom who are turning to God, justifying his works. As a representative of those kinds of people, we meet there in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Scholarly conjecture um, is that this, this woman was likely a prostitute because of how known Simon seems to indicate it was that she was a sinner in this city. But we can't really know for sure. I'm going to begin here by observing how these two representatives are contrasted against one another. Um, on the one hand, this sinful woman is desperate. She's desperate. She's humble. And she's lavish in her love. She's desperate, humble, and lavish. But then Simon the Pharisee on the other side is composed, he's critical, and he's calculated in his love, if it's love at all. We're going to take these contrasts one pair at a time, and then I'm going to use them as kind of a diagnostic tool to even look at our own hearts and lives before Jesus. And ask, man, which group are we in? We're in the group that's saying, yes, amen. You can bring the hard word to me. We will take it because we know it leads to joy. We're in the group that says, don't you say a hard word. Pad my ego. Flatter me. Say something good, but don't tell me the truth. Which group are we in? Because it will part ways here very quickly. Are we desperate or are we composed? Are we desperate or are we composed? The sinful woman, no doubt, is marked with a sense of desperation. That's, I mean, that's what you get, I think, clearly from the way this narrative begins. She's not invited to this banquet. She's not on the guest list, right? But she doesn't care. If Jesus is there, she is going to get in the mix, you see. Because she's desperate. So we read in verse 37, she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. And then suddenly in verse 38, there she is. <laughs> Taking over the whole dinner party. And she's looking crazy, isn't she? She's looking unashamed. She's looking like a woman desperate. I mean, there's tears just flowing from her eyes as if, you know, from a broken, as if water from a broken pipe, right? 
There's hair just crisscrossing her face, disheveled, out of place. There's probably, I mean, if you've ever seen a little kid cry, you know snot comes with it. It's flowing. But she doesn't care, you guys. Let Simon say what he wants to say. I'm going to get to my Savior. You see? She's desperate and she has this sense that Jesus can help. I want out of this life. I want forgiveness for what I have done. And it's got this sense. You're the one who can give it to me. So she's there at the floor or on the floor at Jesus' feet. In contrast, Simon is and remains throughout the whole evening composed, right? He's not on the floor at Jesus' feet. He's reclining at the table with him, conversing almost as if with an equal, right? The behavior of this woman doesn't seem wise to Simon at all. In fact, it seems offensive. Like, look at her. She's all out of sorts. She's crazy. She's not composed. And look at my robes and all this. We remember, we remember what religion really is for the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they like to walk around in long robes, we're told. And they like greetings in the marketplaces and having the best seats in the synagogue, not on the floor, the places of honor at the feasts. And they make these long prayers because it makes them look good. Mark 12, 38 to 40. Religion's all about composure. It's all about image. Making yourself look better for them. So they don't know anything about this face to the floor, snot running down your face sort of thing. This is beneath them. In fact, it's probably why Simon invited Jesus into his home in the first place. He, he knew that it would create a stir in the community. Oh, wow, did you hear who's coming over to Simon's? Dude, it's that guy from Nazareth who's doing all the miracles and, you know, causing all this amazing stuff to happen. He's at Simon's house. It's another way of padding his reputation among the neighborhood. There's no desperation here. Just this chilled sort of composure. So what about us? Are we desperate before Jesus or are we composed? I mean, do we come to him as a wretched sinner in need of a salvation only he can give? Or do we kind of come into church as a pretty decent person who just needs a little help with their image? I want some good publicity. Like, hey, bring the cameraman. I'm going to give something to the poor here. I want that to be on my Facebook feed. All my fans will see it. Is it composure or is it desperation that marks our relationship with Jesus Christ? To come at it another way, when is the last time you cried, and I mean really cried, at church or over your Bible in 
your room alone. You got any of those pages in here? You know, they make these thin little pages. These pages can't hold up to my tears, right? You got any pages? You're like, I remember that morning. You can see the wrinkles on the tissue paper there. When's the last time we met with Jesus like that? We are more desperate for him than we could ever know. You want to know what real sanity looks like when it's starting to uh, uh, have influence on the heart of a person? Real sanity looks like this woman's craziness. (laughs) You get that? It's amazing. And this whole thing Simon's doing in the presence of the living God who with just a flash of his eyes could incinerate him for his sin, that's insanity. Keep going. (laughs) Second pair uh, in this contrast between the two. Are we humble or are we critical? Are we humble or are we critical? The threefold, the threefold reference to Jesus' feet there in verse 38 serves to highlight this sinful woman's humility. One commentator reminds us to attend to the feet in that day, and still to this day, I assume, was a menial task, one assigned to a slave. And there she is at his feet. And let me tell you something. This is what she says about it. Let me, let me attend to your feet. It would be my honor, you see. Now, man, that's beneath me to be there washing and anointing and attending to your feet. No, no, no. What an honor. See, she gets John the Baptist's ministry, does she not? I am not even worthy to untie the strap from his sandal. That's how great he is. That's how far removed we are from him. What an honor to be at your feet. But in contrast, Simon does not hesitate to elevate himself over the people in our text. He has a sense of superiority and with it comes a critical spirit. Now, I wonder if you saw that there in verse 38. Something interesting is here I wanted to point out. Or I'm sorry, verse 39. It says this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And with that thought that was spoken to himself, it seems, He effectively condemns both this woman and Jesus. But I wonder if you caught that little phrase there. What sort of woman this is. What sort of woman this is. Simon had already sorted her out in his mind. There are the righteous... They walk a certain way, talk a certain way, look a certain way, do a certain thing. I know their sort. 
And then there's the sinner. And it's not hard to tell which group she's a part of. Oh, I know her sort, and you should too, Jesus. I thought you were a prophet, letting her touch you. It's disgusting. But Jesus turns to Simon down in verse 44 and asks a profound question that we dare not pass over. This is his question. Do you, Simon, see this woman? It's not a rhetorical question. This is the real thing. He is saying, Simon, I mean, do you actually see this woman? You cannot see what you've already sorted. You Pharisees, you're always looking to the appearance of things. But you miss the heart. That's what I see here. I see a woman coming back to God. I see a woman whose heart broken before and the kind of sacrifice that my God delights in. That's what I see. Why don't you see it? You don't see her at all. You see her sort. Just a sinner. I wonder if you've ever been sorted by even the church. I mean, these are religious leaders here in Israel. And even religious leaders can so miss the heart of God. It's not just a Jewish thing, a scribe Pharisee thing. It's happening in churches all over the place today. And maybe it's even happened to you where you come in and you've been wandering, you've been prodigal, you've been perhaps you, you didn't even know Jesus and, and you've been living this life and you hear about him, you think maybe there's hope and a friend finally invites you, like I'm going to come and you, you come looking for grace and a way out. And instead you just find condemnation. You find that these people have sorted you without really, truly seeing you. With their little pursed lips and their pointed fingers and their quiet murmurs and their cold shoulders, you know, I don't belong here. They're not going to let me change. They're not going to extend grace to me, proclaim whatever they want. They have me boxed in. I'm a sinner. Always will be. It's not the heart of Jesus, brothers and sisters. He lets this, this sinful woman come in, touch him, cry over him. Embrace him, and he doesn't rebuke her for it. He receives her, and then he commends her. He holds her up for the rest of the table to truly see. Stop sorting her and see her, because this is what my father delights in. A heart broken over sin. 
hungry, thirsty for righteousness, and coming to me for grace. Grace doesn't sort you. It doesn't box you in. It doesn't pigeonhole you and say it's over. Grace forgives 70 times 7. Grace gives the restart again and again. Grace gets in and renews you from the inside out. Forget appearances. We'll take care of that later. Get crazy and desperate now, and we'll start to make you right from the inside. We'll give you that way forward. You want out of the life of sin? You want out of this spiral? Jesus is the way. There's hope for the sinner here in Christ. So bringing it back to the contrast I shared at the beginning of this, what about us? Do we come to church humble in awe that we even get to be here in God's presence and extending this lavish grace to others because we just know what's been given to us. We don't deserve it. Wow. Or do we come critical, sorting out everyone and everything because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Third and final within these contrasts are we lavish or are we calculated are we lavish or are we calculated a pharisee's love was always calculated okay they followed the law of god to the letter i mean they pulled out their I don't think people even use Texas instruments anymore now. They pull out their Texas instrument, and they are calculating just how much they have to do to follow that law to the letter, and we will do nothing more. But we will do it. So if in Leviticus 27.30 it says that you need to give God a tenth or a tithe, Of all the produce of the land, whatever your seed yields, well, that's what they do. Down to the mint and the dill and the cumin, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23. But in all their meticulous calculations, they fail to give him, God, Jesus, the most important thing of all, namely, their hearts. Their hearts. And it's that, the heart, that this woman is pouring out before Jesus in lavish expression. No calculations here. No holding back here. Just lavish, extravagant love. Jesus himself contrasts Simon's calculated love with the lavish love of this woman in verses 44 to 46. He says this, I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I mean, common courtesy might have been water and a cloth. This woman says, no, 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 we'll go, 
We've got to go more lavish than that for the king of kings. How about my tears and my hair? Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Common greeting might have been to kiss me on the cheek, Simon. You didn't think that was necessary? This woman didn't even attempt to kiss so high up. She stayed low and kissed my feet. Extravagant, lavish love. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It would have been nice to have a little olive oil to take care of some of the dryness on my head after traveling. The dry air here, whatever, I guess is what they did. She gave me so much more than just a little bit of table oil, olive oil. She broke open an alabaster jar and poured perfume oil, not on my head, again, on my feet. There's no calculation. There's just lavish love pouring forth from a heart simultaneously broken and healed in the presence of Christ. So what about us? Do we do our Christian thing? Do we have our Christian calculations? I'll go to Sunday service, maybe three out of four weeks. I'll make sure I give a tenth of what I earn or I'll do my, my tithing. I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll go to my Bible studies. You can have one night of the week. We do these things all the while our hearts are set on something else. Or does he have all of us? And this little stuff, Sunday service, Bible study, whatever. It's just an expression of the fact that he owns my heart. I give him everything. There's no give and take here. It's why would I not pour it all out for you? So now we need to ask, this is really what we'll do uh, as we close. We need to ask what accounts for the difference here. Why desperate, humble, and lavish, for one, of these representatives and then composed, critical, calculated for the other. What accounts for the difference in response and how do we become more like this woman and less like Simon? What's the secret behind This kind of love, this kind of response. How do we get there? Well, Jesus lets us in on the secret. It's not really that big of a mystery, but he tells us how we get there, where it comes from in this little parable he shares in verses 41 to 42. He says this, A certain money lender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii, which was a typical day's wage in their culture. So one owed 500 denarii to this money lender. And the other owed 50. 500, 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? The guy who's forgiven 500 days wages, the guy who's forgiven 50 days wages. Which one will love the lender more? The answer is simple. Even Simon gets it right. The greater the debt canceled, the greater the love for the one who canceled the debt. Or as Jesus sums it up down in verse 47 to get to his point, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Her extravagant, her lavish love is evidence of her, her, her great forgiveness. That kind of love flows from that kind of forgiveness. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that this woman has a greater amount of sin than Simon. Not saying that. Like, Simon, because you're kind of righteous, you're just stuck to kind of, kind of love me. But man, if you really want this kind of love, you've got to go deep into sin, and then we'll get you out, and you'll love. No. It's not about the amount of sin here. It's about the awareness of sin. It's about the awareness of sin. Because the greater awareness you have of your sin before a holy God, the greater appreciation you will have when he comes and forgives. The greater love, the greater joy, the greater awe you will have in the light of the cross. we got to remember, she is a representative of the children of wisdom. She is one of those who received John's ministry. Ministry of repentance and grief over sin. She is one of those who said, I'm going to go with God here. I'm in the wrong. If you say so, show me how deep it goes. She was willing to receive the hard word. It wasn't popular then. It isn't popular now. That we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. That's John's ministry. Flee from the wrath to come. Requires humility to say, I guess when God shows up, he's not going to give me a trophy. I guess he's going to kill me for my sin. Tell me more. She took that word and it went deep. But what it did was set her on the trajectory to understand, to perceive to apprehend and appreciate all that Christ would do for her, you see. 
the grace that was being made available to her in him. Spurgeon puts it this way. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned. Did you hear that? You think lightly of sin, you will think lightly of the Savior. If you aren't willing to let God show you the depths of your sin, he can never take you to the heights of his grace, and your heart will never come alive in love for the Savior like this woman's does. Never. It will always just be calculated, calm, cool, composed. The only way you get crazy is if you go, no way, you saved me from that. This is really what God is trying to to do with, with his people and us throughout the whole scriptures, Old Testament, preparing us for this. John's just like we said, kind of the last one in a long line, getting us ready. But if we're not willing to let God show us the depths of our sin, the hard word, speak the hard word. There's a lot in the scriptures that will just be lost on us. I mean, the story of Noah, we might like it for all the animals. And we might, you know, make little quilts for our kids with elephants dancing under rainbows or whatever. But when you read it, it's a horror story in many ways. I mean, God is effectively opening the floodgates of heaven and washing the filth that we introduced Man, woman, child, dead. Because of sin before a holy God. Or how are you going to understand the exodus from Egypt? We love that. It's wonderful. He parts the Red Sea. Well, what about the Egyptians that are on the bottom of the Red Sea? That's not so great. And what about their firstborn kids that weren't covered by the blood of the Lamb? What's that? The wail that arose in Egypt. The judgment of God against the sin of man. How do you make sense of that? What's God doing there? What about the conquest of Canaan? What are you going to do when you get to Joshua and God's like, let's kill them all. Their sins have risen, accumulated to such a degree. My judgment is ready. Let's go. Or what do you do with, when even with God's own people as he leads them to like Mount Sinai and if you notice this in the book of Exodus it's crazy he leads them out all the people are probably like yes God is our God and then he takes them to Mount Sinai and he says don't you dare touch this mountain don't you dare touch this mountain or I will have to break out against you and kill you <laughs> I am holy you are not I want to be near you I want to bring you back but don't you dare get casual here and lose the depths of your depravity in the midst of my grace and redemption. Hold on a minute. Don't touch that mountain. What do you do when he brings them into the promised land and, and they're there in the temple? And like, wow, this is God's dwelling place with us. And he says, now listen, the place where I really will meet with man over the mercy seat, only one guy gets to go. And that one time a year, and when he goes in, he better bring as much blood as he can and wash that place down. 
with the sacrifices of animals. Because how else can a holy God dwell with a sinful man when their sin deserves death? So all over he is trying to help us with this. I mean, what's God doing here? What's God doing throughout the Old Testament? What's God doing with John and the call to repent? What's not going to go well? The call to flee. He's trying to get us to where this woman is at. Do you understand that? He's not trying to just leave us on the floor broken and feeling dejected. He's trying to put us back together, but you get to healing through the brokenness. Do you see that? You follow John and his call to repent to Jesus and his proclamation, his herald of salvation, and his cross. His cross. All the wrath I just described, all the judgment due our sin... All that stuff, it's as if it were kind of bottled, corked, and then handed to Jesus to drink on the cross. That's what he takes when he's there. It's not just some cute little piece of jewelry. It's at once horrifying and amazing. And awe-inspiring and incredible. It tells us that we do not belong in God's presence, and yet we belong in God's presence. It tells us, brothers and sisters, that God has taken it on himself to cancel our debt. You who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it. To the cross. That's how Jesus can turn to this sinful woman in the last verses of our text and say, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. At the end of the day, this is what I'll leave you with. I suppose that this whole alabaster jar being broken, you know, is this what it was? It was kind of like this mineral. They would chip away and put this perfumed oil in it. And they would compose it in such a way that the neck would have to be broken in order for the perfume to be poured out. At the end of the day, I think that's really a metaphor of what God is trying to do with us here. We have to be broken. We have to let him break us. We might think, man, don't break it. It's a pretty vase. I'm a pretty person. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. I don't want to know how deep it goes. Deserve hell? Come on. That's overreaction. I'm not that bad. Let him break you. 
Let him break you. Let him take you into those tough texts in the scriptures. Let him search out your heart. Let him show you the deep root system of evil in your flesh. Show you what it deserves. When he breaks you, it's in being broken and then being brought to the Savior that from our hearts actually starts to pour forth that kind of worship. The perfumed oil of extravagant love. Lavish love that's all at the same time desperate for him, humble before him, and madly in love with him. Let's pray. Jesus, you have our permission. We want to be children of wisdom. Break us. We know you're not a God that breaks to destroy. You're a God that breaks to heal. Break us, Lord. Convict us of our sin. Show us the depths of it. Show us what you think of it. And then show us the cross and how you love us still, unrelenting in your pursuit of sinners. God, thank you that we get to be on the floor with that woman, broken and healed at the same time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.